0: Good morning, good morning. How we doing, guys? Good. good to be with you. I want to start with uh, praying. Uh, Pastor Allen, who leads the team of pastors here at Southlands, him and his wife, Rennell are away on the East Coast. They're with Monument Church, uh, a new church plant out there, who Eric and Celeste Santiago, who used to be here, are out now giving leadership to that, and now went out to help install elders, which is amazing. Um, and he said, uh, no whining here, uh, you know, with this daylight savings time, no sleepiness, because he was preaching at what would have been like 5 a.m. in terms of his body clock, and there was like snow and ice and stuff. So we got it pretty good. So (laughs) let's pray for them. Father God, I thank you so much for Alan Rennell. I thank you for Monument Church and the Santiago's. I pray, Lord, just that this weekend would be a great blessing. We thank you for Monument that is that uh, one of your lights, and we pray that it would shine brighter, We thank you for the elders that are installed, and we pray for your blessing upon them, and that monument would just go from strength to strength, and God, I ask for us this morning that you would help me now as I preach your word. Uh, Would your spirit rush upon me and give me strength to do so, and would you bring your word to bear on our minds and hearts this morning for your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Hebrews chapter 4. As you're getting there, I think it's fair to say that we all want to be confident. We wanna be confident in our lives, our vocations, our areas of study. We wanna be confident in relationships. If you're in a new dating relationship, uh, often you're just trying to find your footing and confidence. Parents, we wanna be confident in our parenting through the different life stages. If there's any parents here this morning that are very confident, I would love to talk to you afterwards, get some notes. Because to be honest, uh, most of us really struggle with confidence, right? There, there's anxiety, there's worry, or maybe we're confident in one area, but not another. And I think probably all of us really have this desire to be confident in our spirituality, in our faith. We want to know, what's it all mean? How are we in our relationship with God? Is is our eternal security and standing, is it really good? We have the desire to be confident. And the author here in the book of Hebrews, in this section, is trying to help us grow in our confidence. He wants us to be confident. Let's pick up, we're going to read where we were last week picking up in chapter 4 verse 14 and then we'll continue on into chapter 5 so 4:14 since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here, the author has just given us his big idea for this section of scripture. He wants us to hold fast our confession and to press forward in confidence to the throne of grace. He wants to help us in our weakness But Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. And so we're gonna pick up now in chapter five and we're gonna continue to unpack this idea of the high priest and what that means for us. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward Since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son today i have begotten you and he says also in another place you are a priest forever after the order of melchizedek in the days of his flesh jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the reading of God's word. If we are going to understand what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest, I think we need to start by understanding what a high priest is in the Old Testament. Our text is gonna give us three reasons a high priest is good, and then it's gonna show us how Jesus is even better. But we're going to have to do some heavy lifting. We're going to have to get our faces in the text to get understanding this morning. And so are you guys up for that? Yeah? Look at your neighbor. Say, we got this. this. All right, we're good to go. Number one, a high priest is appointed by God. You see in verse 1 and then verse 4 that every high priest is chosen from among men, but no one takes this honor for himself, only when called by God. The text references Aaron, who you may remember is Moses' brother, and he was the first priest that was installed, him and then his sons, and then the line of Aaron after that was where the priests of Israel would come from. And we see this installation, or God given his explanation for what the priests would do in Exodus chapter 29, verse 44. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And it says that Aaron and the priests, that they are to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And the priests had many formal roles, many things that they did for the people. They lit the lamps that were in the temple. They bearing before the Lord the names of Israel as a memorial. They inquired of God. They sought his will for the people. They consecrated the Levites. They appointed the other priests to offices. They even took charge of the money that was collected for the treasury they presided over superior courts. They even had this role of governance and influence. They took the census. They blessed the people. So the priests did a lot, but maybe most important is what we see here in Hebrews is that they, got, they brought gifts and sacrifices to atone for the people's sin. And most notably, we see this on the Day of Atonement, which we'll look at a little bit more fully in a moment. But I think at this point, it's helpful to note that this is one of the things or the main thing that separates a priest from a pastor. See, it is my role to work on your behalf. I pray for you, I love and care and counsel, I preach God's word for your benefit, but here's what I can't do. I don't make sacrifices to atone for your sin. That role no longer exists, but that is what the priest was supposed to do. Well, I don't have to do that anymore, thank God, because Jesus was also appointed to be high priest. Look at verse five, it says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the author says a lot here. He's doing a, a whole bunch of things that are going on. He's quoting two different Psalms, and he's also reaching back and referencing a story in the book of Genesis in regards to Abraham and this really obscure but very important figure, Melchizedek. You are my son today. I have begotten you. He's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. And this is a Psalm that Hebrews has already quoted, so you know it's important. In chapter one, it was quoted and said, in regards to you are a little, you are higher than the angels. It's a Psalm that denotes that Jesus is the king, that he comes in the line of David and he has been installed. He's the promised one, the forever king. And then it quotes Psalm 110 verse four. And I love this. Do you guys love the Bible? Can we get a little excited about the Bible this morning? Come on. I know you guys love stories. You, you love the Marvel Universe and Star Wars because there's all these layers and they keep adding stories and building it out more. But come on, people. The Bible, written so many thousands of years ago, the story of God where he, by the power of his spirit, wove just this incredible, complex story with all these meanings. And so what the Bible does here is, it's the psalmist reaching back to Genesis and pulling something through. This, this idea of Melchizedek. And then the New Testament authors reach back to the Psalms and they pull it through. And here's who Melchizedek was. There's a story where Abraham's nephew Lot, you guys remember him? He's a knucklehead. He's always getting himself in trouble. And so he gets captured. He's living in the city of Sodom. He gets captured and hauled away. Abraham hears about it and he goes after him to rescue him. So he goes to war. He gets Lot and all the other people and all the wealth and possessions and he brings them back. And as he comes back, two kings come out to welcome him and thank him the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Now, Salem means city of peace. And this king, Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. So the king of righteousness of the city of peace, and then it says that he was priest of the most high God. Now, I'm trying not to take too much of Al's thunder because all of Hebrews chapter seven is about this guy in this story. But it drops it here, so I gotta take a little bit of it. And so here's what we need to see. Here's what the author's doing. He's saying Jesus is not like Aaron. He's not beset with weakness. He doesn't come from the line of Aaron and his priests. Because here's the thing about Melchizedek. What I just told you is pretty much all that we know about him. There's no family line. There's no ancestry. We don't have other stories about him. It's just this guy that was this incredible priest king. And Hebrews says Jesus is like that. He is the forever king of righteousness who wants to welcome you into his city of peace. And he's the priest of the most high God. Number two, a high priest makes atonement for people. Verse one says he acts on behalf of men in relation to God, that he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. So let's talk a little bit more about this day of atonement. This is something that the Jewish people still practice today. It's known as Yom Kippur. And in this festival that was so important that would happen every year, there was this annual cleansing for sin. And Aaron would go into the inner sanctuary in the tabernacle and then one day in the temple, the priest would go in And I've even heard that they would tie a rope around their foot because they would go in alone. And the rope was in case they did something wrong and fell dead, they could drag them out. And the idea is, is that this is such a sacred moment, they would take a bull and two goats. And the priest would go in and he would sacrifice the bull for himself because he needed to cleanse himself of sin. And on this day, he would wear special garments that were different. And then he would sacrifice the goat on behalf of the people. And I know that we struggle with this idea of animal sacrifice. To our modern ears, it seems so archaic and barbaric, this idea of shedding blood. But I want to help us maybe palette this a little bit more. My friend Will Anderson He is a church planning resident down at Southland Santa Ana, and he gives kind of four illustrations that says, no, atonement is in our blood. We can't get away from it. This is just how we are and how we think. You know when you eat something to nourish your body that life was given. You're maybe a little bit more aware of this when you have a big, juicy, rare steak that's still got a little blood in it. You're you're like, you know something died so that you could enjoy that. And you vegans that are so grossed out right now, listen, when you eat your apple, that thing also gave its life so that you could be nourished, all right? There's atonement that we're daily interacting with. Uh, Another example is in our bodies. This one's kind of gross, but when you have a wound and you have all that pus rising up and coming out of your body and then eventually it scabs over, I know, it's so gross. But here's what happens. Some of your blood cells gave their life and died so that you could heal. That's right. So that, that's what Jesus does is he takes on sin's infection for you yeah. so that you could be made whole. Think about nature. Firefighters will have these controlled fires where they actually let it burn so it gets rid of all the death and decay so that land can be rejuvenated and flourish. New life can come. I love the pictures of salmon going upstream going all the way back to alaska and they go up these rivers and it's an excruciating journey and they get there and they spawn and then they die they make the journey so that they can continue as a species and life can be born but maybe my favorite and most compelling is the way that we tell stories Our favorite stories have substitutionary atonement built in. We love a hero that will sacrifice for the greater good of people. Will says it this day. He says, we may deny atonement with our heads, but our hearts can't be fooled. And Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. We know that life is in the blood. The second goat, you remember him? The second goat is a symbol. And the priest wouldn't sacrifice it, but he would actually take and lay his hands on this goat and he would pray and he would confess the sins of the people. And it was this idea of transference where the sins would be transferred to the goat. This is where we get our term scapegoat. And then the goat would be released and sent away into the wilderness, symbolizing the sins being removed from the people. Can you imagine just the relief on that day? There was this long festival of repentance that that culminated in the day of atonement. Can you imagine Aaron actually comes out of the inner room and you're like, okay, it worked. God accepted our sacrifice. We've been cleansed and purified. It'd be such a moment of joy and relief. Man, another year my sins wiped away. I'm accepted by God. And then you leave the temple and you pull out onto Imperial, and someone cuts you off. And road rage comes in and you go home and your kids are being annoying and you snap at them. And now your heart just sinks, can you imagine? Just for a moment, you were cleansed. You were pure before God only to walk out the doors and immediately you were smacked in the face with your guilt again. And you begin another long year. A feeling the weight of your sin before a holy God. Church, this is why Jesus is so much better. Because he's the great high priest that actually makes atonement for us by becoming the source of our atonement. See, life is in the blood. And so Jesus gave up his so that we could be made whole. Verse nine says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. John Piper in his book, The Passion of Jesus Christ says it this way. That's who Jesus Christ is. He became the final priest and the final sacrifice. Sinless, he did not offer sacrifices for himself. Immortal, he is, never has to be replaced. Human, he could bear human sins. Therefore, he did not offer sacrifices for himself. He offered himself as the final sacrifice. There will never be the need for another. There is one mediator between us and God, one priest. We need no other. Oh, how happy are those who draw near to God through Christ alone, amen? So Jesus is our great high priest. He was appointed by God. He makes atonement for our sin. And third, he is a priest that is gentle with the weak. Verse two says he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. The Old Testament is always dealing with two types of sinners, the unknowing and the willful. And both are always held to account. We know this. Ignorance is no excuse for the law. You will be held account for where you have fallen and where you break The law. But the good news is that Jesus is gentle with both groups. See, the ignorant are those who don't know better or who don't mean to. I know for myself, some days I wake up just pure hearted. I'm excited to live life. I really want to follow Jesus and do good. I want to be gentle and loving patient, kind, self-controlled, you know, the fruit of the spirit stuff. But then life happens. My wife, my kids, some of you guys, and pretty quickly you're informing me, hey, that fruit of the spirit thing, not going so well. It's like, man, on those days, I'm so thankful that Jesus is gentle with me in my ignorance But maybe even more so is on the wayward days. Those days where I wake up on the wrong side of the bed. A little selfish. Maybe a lot selfish. A little bitter. May lash out in anger. Just me? Any of you guys have those days? Wrong side of the bed days? Yeah? Maybe some some of us are in the room and we're actually just in a wayward season we're hardening our hearts we're going our own way we're running after the things that we know the law of god prohibits but we just want to our desires we're just just deceived and we're going forward and here's the good news see if you're ignorant i think we we can understand that okay you didn't mean to it's okay i forgive you But here's what Jesus does, is even when you are wayward, going full on into sin, he's gentle with you. He's gentle with you. Now, here in our text, it says, because he is beset with weakness, because he understands and the need for sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the people. Well, that's not talking about Jesus. Jesus isn't beset with weakness. Human priests, pastors, leaders, we're beset with weakness. And so hopefully because we're aware of our own need for sacrifice, we're able to be gentle. That's not really that good of news, is it? I mean, let's be honest. The reason so many of you in the room have church baggage is because leaders have hurt you, because they've failed you. See, it's great that they're weak, but that doesn't really work out too well for us. I've been so hurt and disappointed by leaders. Think you have church baggage? Talk to a pastor. They got church baggage. And what's worse is I've also been that leader, the one who's hurt, the one who's failed. I hate to be beset with weakness. Beloved, let me give you some of the best advice I can for how you can hold fast your faith and you can sustain. How you can keep from falling out, walking away from the church, abandoning your faith in this age where deconstruction is invoked. Let me give you some advice for how you can sustain You gotta choose a better leader. You need to get a different priest. You need to look to Jesus, the one who's not beset with weakness. On my best day, the best I can do is to point you towards him. Don't put your faith, don't put your hope in the church or in leaders, but in the one who those point to. Jesus is his name. And the good news is that Jesus chose to become weak even though he was strong. When verse seven says, in the days of flesh, it's reminding us that Jesus wasn't always weak, that he is the creator, almighty God of heaven and earth. And yet he chose to condescend. He chose to enter in for our good Imagine it this way. You remember when you were a kid and you used to hoop it up in the neighborhood? Maybe you went down to the local park and there was a, a winner stays game of basketball and there were these older kids that were a little bit stronger, a little bit more athletic, a little better. And every day you'd go down, you really wanted to win. You wanted to do well, but they would send you home early. You had your best friend with you, but he wasn't good enough. And even, it doesn't matter how much you strove and practiced, you were kind of like Kobe without Shaq. It just wasn't good enough. And then one day, dad says, I'll stay home from work. And hey, we we should go down to the courts together, and let's see if we can win. You got Shaq. And so you go down, and this is your day. You win, and you dominate. See, this... You didn't win because you were good enough or strong enough. You won because dad showed up. Dad wasn't actually a kid. The power was in his strength, but he entered in and went with you. Some of you guys didn't like that illustration. That's okay. Some of you are you're still trying to get over the fact that I made Shaq the Christological prototype and not Kobe. There you go. You'll get over it. Jesus isn't weak. weak. He's strong, but he's able to sympathize. Because he he entered in, he became lowly, and he chooses to be gentle with us. Puritan theologian John Owen says it this way, Jesus can no more cast off poor sinners for their ignorance and wandering than a nursing father should cast away a sucking child for its crying. Thus ought it to be with a high priest and thus it is with Jesus Christ. He is able with all meekness and gentleness, with patience and moderation to bear with the infirmities, sin and provocations of his people, even as a nurse or nursing father bears with the weakness of a poor infant. As a father of three, I can tell you there is nothing more natural than when your baby cries out to want to go and to hold them. When a toddler falls and scrapes their knee, you run to pick them up and to bring comfort. And church, this seems like such simple and such obvious truth, and yet let's be honest, this is what we fail to believe, isn't it? That Jesus bent towards us is one of grace. That his impulse is compassion and not anger for his people. It's so hard for us to believe it, but this is what he invites us into, is that he is a priest who is gentle and able to sympathize. Dan Ortland says it this way, when Jesus deals gently with us, he is doing what is most fitting and natural to him. Indeed, given the depths of our sinfulness, the fact that Jesus has not yet cast us off proves that his deepest impulse and delight is patient gentleness. So as we near a close, I want us to look again at Jesus' strength in his humanity because it's there that we can find our confidence in our weakness. I think so often we just want to not be weak anymore. But Jesus chooses to leave us in that place. Life is hard. Suffering is real. Newsflash, it's not just the last two years of COVID. Here's what's ahead for you. Some challenge, some trial. It's not easy, but Jesus is with us. He's gentle with us. Look at verse seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Say, heard because of reverence. All right. As we see in Hebrews, it talks about Jesus with loud cries. Does it not immediately make you think of the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus falls down, just crying out that the cup would pass. Let's look there at Luke chapter 22, verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus cries out for this cup to pass, but we know that it doesn't we know that jesus actually went to the cross and so what do we do with that because hebrews said that he cried out to be saved from death and his prayers were heard because of his reverence so do we have the wrong prayer is this talking about something else i don't believe so if you look closely at the passage in luke there's actually two prayers He prays the first time and he says, let the cup pass, Lord, but your will be done. And it says an angel came in and strengthened him in that moment. And then he began to pray more earnestly. See, I think this is what happened. Jesus continued on in prayer and in the strengthening that he received as he cried out to God in that moment, his heart was aligned to the Father and he Gain new courage to actually go the way of the cross. And it's in that place, as he went to death, and he died on the cross, that he ultimately defeated death and won our salvation. This is what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, looking to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, He despised its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, church, we can be confident in our weakness because Jesus remained reverent in his suffering. Where you and I fail, he endured. Where you and I bail and give up, he said, your will be done. And now we're able to look to him even when we are in this place of suffering. And we're able to take hope And we're able to take courage because we have a high priest who has already purchased our salvation. Is that not good news? And look at verse eight. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So we've got a couple problematic statements here. Say learned obedience. You guys are doing great. Daylight, savings time, and everything. What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? I thought he was the one who was perfectly obedient. Illustration might help us here. College students, if you graduate high school with a four-point GPA, you're considered a perfect student. And then you go to college though, and you have to continue to ace your tests and to get your degree. You have to be tested. It's a learned obedience, trust me. I'm not letting no high school graduating senior with a 4.0 give me heart surgery. Not gonna happen. No, you have to be tested. You have to learn obedience, and hopefully have done a lot of them already afterwards. And then I'll let you open me up for surgery you can be confident because jesus passed the test can you imagine jesus perfect not in sin came into the world can you imagine you know we talk about the terrible twos jesus was a perfect toddler i can't even imagine what that would be like honestly no clue it must have been a dream He must have been the envy of all the other parents. You know, they're like tyrannical, little two-year-olds running all over, and Jesus is just, I don't know, sweet and listens when you say come rather than turn and run into traffic. Now imagine at that two-year-old point, Pharaoh won. He actually was able to find Jesus and kill him. Would Jesus at that point, even though he was perfect, even though he was pure, he was as holy as he ever has been, would he have been tested for our salvation? No. He wouldn't have been able to win our salvation. It's only because he moved on and was perfect through all of life that he became appropriate as a human atonement for our sin. He became the scapegoat. Verse 9 says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Say, made perfect. Jesus became tested and showed himself fit to be our Savior. So you might be a runner, but you don't get to put the 26.2 sticker on your car unless you actually complete the marathon. You have to be tested, and you have to be found fit. And Jesus has been found fit and strong enough to become the source of your eternal salvation. But it says to all who obey, and we get a little nervous, don't we? Because we're like, oh, wait. Does this undo everything that just got said where Jesus is gentle with me in my ignorance and waywardness? Oh no, beloved, this is an obedience of faith. Here's what Jesus invites you into. Will you just come to him and will you put your faith in him for salvation? And will you do it again and again and again? Because his mercy does not run out. His grace does not run out so you can come in confidence to the throne of grace. Imagine being in a desert, no water, and you're just crawling and trying to make it. You are confident in that moment, in your weakness and in your near death that water is the thing that you need. Will you not come to the source of your nourishment, water for your soul, and take hope in him? Church, my hope is is that as a community, we would grow to be a confident and bold people. And it will only happen as we truly understand grace and what it means that Jesus makes atonement for us and he welcomes us in and calls us his people, his children, his sons and daughters. Kevin's gonna lead, or Ryan's gonna take us to communion here in a moment. And just as you're invited to communion, I wanna end with another quote from John Piper that I think will just encourage you and help you to come confidently and boldly. We're likely to feel unwelcome in the presence of God if we come with struggles. We feel God's purity and perfection so keenly that everything about us seems unsuitable in his presence. But then we remember that Jesus is sympathetic. He feels with us, not against us. This awareness of Christ's sympathy makes us bold to come. He knows our cry. He tasted our struggles. He bids us come with confidence when we feel our need. So let's remember the old song of John Newton, Thou art coming to a king large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the righteous king of peace, that you've become our great high priest who's atoned for our sin and so that we can come boldly into your throne. Jesus, I pray, would you, by the power of your Spirit, bless and increase our faith and confidence? Lord, would you help us to have the obedience of faith and a faith that would lead us to grow in righteousness and to grow, because, Jesus, we know that one day you also will make us perfect, that we will come through suffering and we will be ready for the weight of glory. Jesus, we give you all praise and honor. Amen.